Hello and welcome to yet another journal episode of the In Common podcast. My name is Frank Vallarove and you are about to listen to a conversation that I had with Valentina Fonseca Cepeda about her recent IJC publication that is entitled Magical Realism for Water Governance Under Power Asymmetries in the Aracataca River Basin in Colombia. Valentina co-authored this paper together with Daniel Castillo Prieva, Luis Banquero Bernal, Luz Angela Rodriguez, Ileana Steiner, and John Garcia Uloa. What I, among other things, especially like about the article that we discussed is how it speaks of the use of a rather non-conventional blend of methods that includes hydrological analysis to quantify water supply and demand, and role-playing games to get a grip of responses of people to varying water availability. The reference to magical realism in the title triggered me, but I'll let Valentina explain what she intended to convey by means of this term. I learned a lot from talking with Valentina, and I hope that you will enjoy listening to the interview as much as I have enjoyed having it. So Valentina, a warm welcome to our show. Uh, for context, you are in Colombia. I'm in Utrecht, the Netherlands, and for me, it's 7 p.m.-ish, and you are maybe starting to make lunch plans already, as it is a, it's past noon uh, at your end. And I am delighted to speak with you today about your recent IJC uh, contribution. It's an article on wetlands, on water, on conflicts. Uh, more in particular, it's about upstream-downstream dynamics in the Xenaga Grande de Santa Marta wetland complex in Colombia. As many wetlands, also this system is characterized by its high biodiversity and various livelihoods that are closely linked uh, to water, especially livelihoods that are associated with fishing. Uh, unfortunately, also as many wetlands, this system is vulnerable to and affected by uh, many threats. The area is suffering from hypersalinization, you mentioned, and also from uh, mangroves dieback, from modification in the structure of fish communities, uh, water pollutions, and changes in sediment circulation, just to name a few things. A heavy dose of conflict has been added to the mix in the late 1800s, uh, with the introduction of commercial banana cultivation, which was motivated by the then Colombian government's interest in positioning itself uh, in the in, in the global uh, market. Um, banana cultivation required, of course, irrigation systems and dams and canals and reservoirs, and, and that resulted in the historical unequal distribution and access uh, to water resources. And that led to conflict between uh, the bananeros, uh, the fisher folk and, and settlers. And these conflicts have continued to the present day, but palm oil... Um, cultivation seems to have largely replaced the role uh, that bananas used to play, if I understand correctly. Uh, in, in your paper, you set out to study the relation between cooperation and hydrological dynamics that shapes uh, the water governance system in the Aracataca River Basin and the Aracataca River being one of the tributary rivers feeding into the Xenaga Grande de Santa Marta complex. So you... In doing so, you employ a fascinating mix of methods that include quantitative hydrological analysis with uh, and also semi-structure interviews and role-playing games. 
You use hydrological analysis to quantify and establish water demands. You use semi-structure interviews to characterize the basin as a social ecological system where you follow Ostrom's SES framework. And you use role-playing games to tease out the specific responses of the actors in the lower basin to the changing water availability. It's a mix of methods that I definitely want to talk about in a bit more detail later on. But, but first, I would like you to ask about the title. The title is Magical Realism for Water Governance Under Power Asymmetries. And magical realism has me thinking of, uh, of, of Garcia Marquez, the, the, mm -hmm. the Colombian Nobel Prize winning author of uh, 100 Years of Solitude, amongst many other titles. Uh, and I know that Garcia Marquez grew up in Aracataca, the town that shares its name with the river that lies at the center of your case study. And that uh, is said to have served as the model for the mythical town of Macondo, uh, where much of the stories uh, in 100 Years of Solitude are set. And that is the home to the Buendia family. And also, I, I, I happen to remember that the United Fruit Company and the introduction of commercial banana cultivation plays an important role in the book. The reference to magical realism in your title is, I don't think, uh, explicitly explained in the text. You leave much to the imagination of the reader. What would you mind telling me what it means to you, magical realism? Well, it's absolutely related to Gabriel Garcia Marquez. He was born there in Aracataca. And um, the selection for that title is actually because, uh, well, he, in his novel, in 100 Years of Solitude, he refers directly to an historical event that occurred in Aracataca related to the banana massacre, which was very important for the history of the region. And uh, that um, historical event actually was um, uh, determining for what happened later for the oil palm uh, landscape that now we can see when we go there and visit the place and, and, and go through the river. And uh, most of the political um, configuration and the institutional arrangements uh, that now are, are there and are functioning there uh, are due to that um, historical event. So I wanted to, we as, as a team, we wanted to um, remember Gabriel Garcia Marquez and um, to make history present for everyone to remember what, what, what has happened there and why the things that we see now have uh, an historical um, precedent that is very, very important to, to, to remember. And because um, Gabriel Garcia Marquez has an, an amazing talent to um, tell a story that is um, routed to, to, to his uh, place, but at the same time, it's a uh, universal story, what, mm -hmm. what he tells. What he says in, in just one small town, actually, it's universal. So that's, yeah, that's why we picked that title. Again, before moving on to talking about the actual paper, um, talking about magical realism, about water, power, and conflicts. Uh, could, could you introduce yourself uh, in a little bit more detail, Valentina? Uh, can you tell me a little bit more about your, your background, maybe, your interests, the things that have shaped your interest? Of course. So I'm an ecologist. I uh, did my undergrad U8 uh, program on ecology. 
and then I did I, my, my master's studies in conservation and use of biodiversity. And while I was doing both programs, I, um, I was actually not completely satisfied because I uh, received a lot of courses about uh, most of the biophysical issues of environmental problems. So I was watching and seeing uh, taxonomy, hydrology, and um, uh, issues about population and communities in biodiversity. But I never really get to understand the social uh, aspects of environment. So uh, that happened until I was like, I don't, I don't remember, like the last uh, years of the, of the career of the, of the program that I saw for the first time this social ecological assessment and the resilience thinking just in one course. <laughs> but after I saw that, I was completely in love and I fell in love with this approach. And since then, I have been trying to include it in, in my research. So the first time I, I did it in research, I used it in, in research was in, the, um, in my undergraduate uh, thesis about um, traditional ecological transformations related to uh, shift in agriculture in the Amazon uh, with indigenous peoples. So there I started understanding this world uh, through the Berkey's Colding and Folk approach, mm -hmm. which uh, put the traditional ecological knowledge in the middle, like the link between social dimension and ecological dimension. And that was the first approach. Then in my master's study, um, I did just the research that end up being the paper uh, that we're going to talk about. Um, but this time I use the Ostrom uh, approach. This time we, I use the Ostrom framework, the first, second and third tired viables to mm -hmm. describe. And uh, naturally it just uh, turned to be also a common pool resource uh, approach, definitely when I was exploring that. And then, yeah, I just started using this framework also not only as a researcher, but also as a practitioner, uh, also in wetlands in the Bajo Rio Cauca here in Colombia as well. Mm -hmm. And um, in the, um, now actually here in the Amazon as well, in the Guaviare department, I am also using it for um, to understand uh, different levels of governance uh, regarding deforestation here in the Amazon, and yeah, that has been mainly my 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 background. I actually started this year as a professor here in the Universidad Javeriana, uh -huh. so I am now trying to use uh, to bring all this assessment and resilience thinking and social ecological assessment into the classroom, which is which has been an amazing challenge and very yeah. exciting as well. Yeah, absolutely. And so you um, made you made you made full circle. Now you're teaching <laughs> kids what you had to learn in this journey that you just uh, shared uh, with us. And I, I think that concern uh, or that wish to merge uh, both the natural science and the social science side of things, everything commons, also shows from the way in which you have designed the research uh, that uh, lies at the heart of the paper that we're about to discuss. So we'll talk about your approach to uh, collecting and analyzing data in a bit, in a, in a bit more time, where you, where you combine uh, qualitative and quantitative uh, methods, for example. Uh, but but 
Yeah, so, so we are slowly moving towards uh, what the paper is actually about in, in a bit more detail. So the case that you are describing and that I mentioned in the introduction, um, can you can you take us there? It's it's difficult for a listener to an audio podcast to imagine also when you're reading the article what things are like. So, but as as a reader of the article or listener to this podcast, what do we need to know about uh, the, the case before we move on to talk about the actual re research? Can I can I invite you to to take us there? Can you put us in a spot at the place? That you would say is typical for the area and if we were there and we'd look around us uh, what would we see what would we smell what would we feel what does the landscape look like uh, lots of water I'm, I'm presuming vegetation there must be vegetation do, do we see agriculture plantation natural vegetations maybe some animals cattle people signs of human settlements C can you briefly take us there and and, and give us a feel of, uh, of what it's like there of course, and I wish uh, everyone could visit this region because it's amazing. So uh, I'm going to talk about the Cienega Grande Santa Marta, which, which is like the um, bigger region there or the scale that help us understand what happens there. So this is a, a coastal uh, wetland, mm -hmm. which is, uh, I think it's the biggest in Colombia and uh, maybe in South America, even though I can be a little bit uh, <laughs> exaggerated, but that's what I think. And um, so the Cienaga is uh, a deltaic complex that uh, gives the uh, fresh water that, come, that comes from the Magdalena River, which is mm -hmm. one of the most important basins in Colombia, uh, to the sea. So it brings, it, it it is the connection among French water, uh, fresh water and uh, salty water. And um, it is also highly uh, influenced by uh, these this small basins, small rivers that comes from the Sierra Nevada de Santa Marta, which is a, a coastal, uh, also um, a mountain complex that, that uh, gives those fresh water inputs to the Cienega Grande de Santa Marta. So what we see there is an amazing uh, wetland that receives, uh, for example, migration birds that come from North America, mm -hmm. uh, has a high diversity in fish uh, resources, uh, on mangroves as well. Mm -hmm. And um, these uh, inputs of fresh water are actually very important for the ecological dynamics of the Cienega Grande because it defines, as you said at the beginning, uh, how sediments are flowing inside the, the, the wetland, yep. uh, temperature regulation, the uh, uh, oxygen as well. So this is like a very complex hydrological dynamic um, which is actually the base for a lot of livelihoods that, of people that live there. So we have a floating communities mm -hmm. that uh, depend and rely on, on fish, uh, very important for them. And we also have, especially in these small river basins, a lot of agriculture. So we have in the, in the, in the highly parts of these basins, we have uh, Aruacos indigenous reserve, reserves, as you go down in, through the rivers, you find mango, you find coffee cultivation, and then when you get to the coastal plain, to the to the uh, plain of the of the basin, you find these big uh, cultivars of um, oil palm, these very homogeneous uh, 
oil palm landscape. And then on the mouth, and, and at the mouth of the river, you find these floating communities living and relying on fish and water. Uh, so that's basically what you can find there. Yeah, so I'm getting a little bit of a taste. Definitely, I need to go there in order to get the full taste, but a little bit of a teaser of what it must be like. I, I, I find that important. Uh, so, so moving on to your research and not having enough time to delve into the details of, of everything you did and the findings and the discussion thereof and the conclusion, I wanted to look in a bit more detail at, uh, at your approach. One thing that I love about common scholarship in general is its super wide range of methods and research designs and approaches yeah. that, that are empl uh, employed in attempts to get as close as possible to an answer to research questions. And, and, and you are definitely not an exception, far from it. As, as said, you used a creative and a seemingly effective mix of uh, quantitative and more qualitatively inclined research uh, methods. You, you combined uh, hydrological analysis with semi-structured interviews and role-playing games. Firstly, I'm interested in, in learning how, how you did it. How, how did you end up choosing and selecting the particular methods that you used? How did you design your research? Who had what role? How did you integrate things? Could the hydrological analyst talk with your role-playing game specialist? Did you have to invest in creating a common language? Can, can you tell us a little bit about how that process went, uh, Valentina? Sure. So, yeah, first of all, the, the, the mixed methods approach is just an attempt to uh, really trying to integrate those biophysical dimension of, of the problems and really getting into understand what happened with the uh, water demand and the water offer. And on the other hand, to try to understand the complexity of social processes. Um, of course, in both uh, attempts, there's always something that is missing. We are always trying to make models and reality just <laughs> flows like water through our fingers. Like there, there's always something that is going to miss. But um, that was the, the, the intention to, to really try to understand those both uh, universes and how are they uh, interacting. So um, we... Uh, picked the um, semi-structured interviews just in the first place to try to understand the context of, of the of the problem. And so we interviewed different types of actors that gave us different visions of the of the problem. And then with that context information, we designed the role-playing game. Mm -hmm. So the game was of course also a model trying to um, to model reality and the problems that meant to use water. But um, it was also meant to try to reach those things that people just don't tell you in an interview. Sometimes when you're talking to someone, um, especially in this scenario where uh, the water management problem has uh, an important a component of informality and uh, most of the problems also have to do with armed conflict in Colombia. So that kind of things that aren't just easy to say in an interview just pop out during the role-playing game. Mm -hmm. So uh, that was amazing about the game. We, we could uh, understand all the, the complexity of the social interactions uh, through the game. 
but also we, it meant uh, uh, a lot of uh, work on understanding the landscape and also the water uh, amount that we had to put in the game so it was real um, and yeah definitely it was a uh, teamwork i mean it, it, it we needed people that really understand hydrology and hydroclimatology variables and um, of course we had to to use like a lot of pilots of uh, the game to uh, every time to um, fix everything and, and try to make the model the most precise possible for the reality that we were working on. So yeah, that was basically the, the process. I wanted to ask you, do you feel that you have created added value or synergies through this mixed method approach? And I can anticipate the answer being yes, because that was already embedded in your answer to the previous question. But but how would you say that the separate results of, of outcomes of applying all three approaches respectively fed into one another? How are these outcomes connected and, 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 and necessary uh, for the full story? Maybe you have more details and, and maybe examples of how, how that went, how the hydrological analysis uh, and, and, and your more precise understanding of demand had an impact on the role-playing game or maybe vice versa or how maybe interview questions were uh, informed by, by the outcomes of either one of the applications that, uh, that, that were related with the other uh, approaches? Yeah, sure. Uh, I think that the, the added value of this approach was uh, in the analysis of the results and then in the discussion of the findings. Uh, for example, we find out that... Um, the hydrological uh, regime that we uh, understood and that we described actually really fitted with with the local perceptions of the of the actors. So it, it, actually, at the month scale, like they say, this month is a dry month, and it was perfectly fitted with the hydrological analysis. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, it was super interesting to, to see um, that actually both worlds are, are actually really connected. And uh, also um, in the role-playing game, we we actually saw that um, even though in the hydrological analysis we found that that it was uh, there was enough water to distribute among all the actors, all the users, mm -hmm. there was still uh, not water, not not enough flow at the end of the river. So it was it, it gave us like a really uh, interesting question to 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 make so how is it possible that with enough water hydrologically speaking uh, and we are not watching it we can see it in reality there in the territory so it um well gave us an, an idea of, of how institutions and institutional arrangements are really important also in uh, in drawing the landscape and the and the and the water offer and the water availability. So it was definitely, uh, so what, what we conclude in the article is actually that that we, that even though there's enough water, mathematically speaking, mm -hmm. uh, there's always an important social variable that is going to actually determine who is getting water and, and if water is actually available, not only for people, but also for, for the whole ecosystem. So I think that thanks to that mixed uh, method approach, we could we we get to to that interesting uh, 
conclusions that were actually, I think there that kind of conclusion is actually helping uh, decision makers because there's no all, uh, there's no uh, excuse now to say that we need to change that institutional arrangements. Yeah. And the problem is not a scarcity of water, but of water, but the, the problem of the governance of water. Fascinating and, and, and super important. It's it's not a scarcity, but an allocation issue. And allocation is tightly related with, with governance and, and power and, and decisions and and so forth and so on. And this is, by the way, also something that is uh, that is playing a big role in 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 in, in the discussions uh, in, in in the section of the article where you discuss the outcomes. And these outcomes, in and by themselves, are, I would say, a bit sobering. So, so you say that regardless of uh, of the variation in water supply, you find that the main outcomes remain, and these main outcomes are inequality in water distribution, decrease in flow in the river, and conflicts uh, among users. And then you go on to suggest that the water issues in the basin are more complex uh, than the numerical relationships between demand and supply. And you have alluded to that and illustrated that in answer to my previous question. So in an attempt to explain this outcome, you, you, you point at issues that are, among other things, related with heterogeneity and with yeah. power asymmetries. Could you could I could could I invite you to to elaborate a bit more uh, on that, uh, Valentina? What what do you mean by that? What what is the role of power? What is the role of heterogeneity in explaining that, in spite of uh, scarcity not being an issue, allocation leads to inequity and and conflict? Sure. So, for to answer that question, we definitely need to go to the historical trajectory of the of the Sienagana and, and the Arakataka River Basin. So, as we said at the beginning, uh, there was um, an important palm, uh, sorry, banana economy at the at the at the at the beginning of the of the of the podcast. We we, we said that mm -hmm. and. Um, that banana economy was uh, related to the to or due to the government uh, policies, economic policies, uh, from trying to 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 feed Colombia into the the big market uh, dynamics. Mm -hmm. So banana was intended to bring multinational uh, enterprises and uh, to to yeah to 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 put Colombia into the global uh, dynamics. Uh, so the companies and the banana cultivation was uh, directly uh, related to power and to power de decision making. Um, in I mean they were they were really linked to the government. They were actually an economic power that was leading decisions in the government. So that happened with banana, but then when the oil palm replaced the, the cultivation, uh, it was almost like a, a replacement in the in the land um, a cover, but it was a still the same uh, dynamic economy. So mm, the the oil palm. Uh, mm, Enterprises are actually uh, favorited uh, for um, by the government, uh, and they are actually an economic power that make decisions of who is governing uh, at the municipality level, at the department level, which is 
between the, the municipality and the national level. And they are actually in an informal way uh, deciding who is the governor, who is the uh, mayor in the region. So uh, that's, that's, that's how this power uh, is just uh, put it too much power in one uh, economic sector in the Arakataka and in the region. Uh, um, and the other actors that are there are just just uh, not as powerful as these companies, for example, yeah. the fisher community and or the indigenous communities that are, are upstreams. So um, that heterogeneity of power and decision making um, is given by a very explicit political dimension. And, uh, that is actually defining who is getting access to water or not. Because yep. they are really trying to 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 if, um, give all the power and all the water to the palm uh, uh, to the oil palm producers because they are directly related to the government uh, that has always uh, given favors to these economic sectors. <laughs> I now understand that this is the story of Macondo, but it's also a universal story. This is a story that we see. Uh time and again in, in different places in the world. So uh, thank you for pointing that out. And also thank you for pointing out the, the actual meaning of, uh, of, uh, of magical realism in, in the title. We're, we're moving towards the, the last question. And that's a question uh, about uh, the meaning of your work, your research for commoners uh, or maybe for practitioners. And I'm glad to hear that you consider yourself a practitioner besides being an academic. So, so imagine the following, you, you are in one form or the other involved with the governance of, of water in, in, in the area, in the, in the wetland complex. You are maybe a member of an indigenous uh, community or you're an artisanal fisher in the, in, in the in, in, uh, downstream. What, what can you take away from this study? What is the main lesson in, in practical terms? So after having read the article with the help of Google Translate, after having heard this podcast, what is the absolute first thing that as uh, a commoner in this particular setting I should do? Or, or is there maybe nothing that as a commoner I, I can do uh, other than hoping that for once the power will be put to work in favor of me rather than uh, against for a change? What what would be your practical lesson, uh, Valentina? Well, I think that uh, I have the chance to give a little bit of a voice uh, to these uh, communities that are relying on fishing and on water dynamics and that are actually uh, having less power in decision-making. I think that just bringing this this story to other places and uh, maybe help them uh, just to just to say something, right? Maybe it's not a structural change, but just to to make this story travel around uh, the world. So so maybe that's one of the things. I think uh, it's an important contribution. Um, yeah, and I just wanted to say something um, about these power relations. Mm -hmm. uh, because this has been like this in Colombia, like forever. <laughs> the, mm -hmm. the, the, the history in Colombia has always been on how to give more, more power to the powerfuls. Um, but this year, actually, for the first time in the history of the country, uh, uh, this was elected a new government uh, with a much more liberal uh, thinking, maybe with a left trend in the in the politics and in the discourse, and 
I am actually hoping that then it can somehow help to change this dynamic of power in the Aracataca River Basin and maybe in, 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 in other places, as we said, it is universal. So in Colombia, maybe um, there are some expectations of how this new government is going to, to shift these, these structures. And um, yeah, that's what, what, what everybody actually is like with high expectations of what is going to happen now. With that, I think we uh, we have to come to an end of the show. Uh, Valentina, thank you for joining uh, us, me, all the way from Colombia. It was uh, an absolute pleasure to talk with you, to learn a little bit more about you, your important work on uh, magical realism, but also on uh, on power and water and wetlands in, uh, in the Sienaga Grande de Santa Marta wetland complex. Thank you so much, Valentina. Thank you, Frank, for this opportunity to speak and tell the story. So this was another episode of the uh, journal episode series of the In Common podcast. We produce these episodes for students of the Commons that range from seasoned scholars to early career or wannabe researchers. To offer them a peek behind the scenes of research, to allow them to appreciate both the nitty gritty, the messy reality that you don't get to see in the published version of a paper. We also make these episodes for commoners, for practitioners that may not have the time, the patience or the stomach to work themselves through 20 pages worth of dense jargon laden research papers. And of course, we make these episodes for you. Thank you for listening and I really hope you have enjoyed it. You can find more episodes as well as our blog on the website incommonpodcast.org and tell us what you think about the episode or about the show. You can do that on Twitter, at IncommonPod. And of course, if you like us, leave a rating or a review wherever you find your podcasts, and this will help others to find us as well. The article that we discussed today can be found, can be downloaded for free at thecommonsjournal.org. The International Journal of the Commons is a community-owned and operated open access platform for high-quality, peer-reviewed Commons research content. In Common is the official podcast of the International Association for the Study of the Commons.